all of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. Many of you know that faith is a complicated thing and that our journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson. My good friend Greg Fairn and I are also on this journey of becoming. We are both dedicated to inviting you into our journeys and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. We want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey that we all find ourselves on. We want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. We have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of our biggest allies. We have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And we believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining us on that journey. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And before we jump in today, I wanted to just throw this out there uh, and do with this uh, what you will. Rethinking Faith does have a Patreon if you didn't know that. And so uh, if you don't know what that is, it's basically just a little platform uh, where people who appreciate the work that Rethinking Faith is doing uh, can choose to be like, hey, here's some money so you can do some more stuff. And so we have a variety of tiers starting as low as $1 a month uh, up through $10 a month. And with that, um, you can gain access to some video content. So uh, like more raw, uh, unedited kind of uh, video content of the podcast. But also we do a special show just for listeners called Happy Hours, uh, where the S is in parentheses uh, with our friend Trip Fuller. And that is always a blast. And so that's a, a patron exclusive that you can grab over on Patreon. So if you like what we're doing and uh, want to help us keep doing this work and also increase the kind of things that we're able to do, uh, maybe go over to uh, Patreon and check us out. I'll be sure to put a link in the show notes. And then also, if you wouldn't mind uh, rating and reviewing our podcast on uh, iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, um, that would be fantastic. Okay, enough with the icky, gross, capitalistic uh, bullshit that podcasters say uh, that we rarely say, but have to say it sometimes. <laughs> uh, a much more interesting thing to talk about is actually the guest that I have with me today, and that is Andrew Schwartz. Andrew, how is it going, man? going great happy to be here thanks yeah thanks so much for agreeing to come and hang out i'm uh i'm excited um i've been a fan of your work for some time and so i'm excited Likewise. to have a conversation and uh see where it goes uh but maybe just for starters ready like podcasting 101 question uh for people who may not be super familiar with your work uh, or what kind of things you find yourself doing um would you share a little about a uh, little bit about yourself sure so 
Uh, my name is Andrew Schwartz. I am a professor of theology at Claremont School of Theology based in, in uh, Southern California. Um, although I live in Portland, Oregon now, and I'm teaching and working remotely. So it's back home to my uh, Pacific Northwest roots. I uh, also serve uh, with, with Claremont School of Theology uh, as the executive director of the Center for Process Studies, which is a faculty research center established before I was born, uh, 50 years ago, way back in 1973, by uh, professors there uh, in Claremont, John Cobb and David Griffin, who um, wanted a faculty project that really could focus on um, promoting a process relational worldview um, and its application for um, making the world a better place for the common good. So last 50 years, the uh, the Center for Process Studies has been doing conferences, um, research projects, publications, all relevant to that, um, to that mission. I also, in addition to that, uh, in 2015, along with my, uh, my Claremont colleague, Philip Clayton, launched the Institute for Ecological Civilization, um, or ECOCIV for short. And um, that's a new nonprofit, uh, newer, I guess, seven years now, holy smokes. Um, eight, depending on math, seven and a half. I don't know. It's 2023 now. Congratulations. Anyway, so EcoCiv, um, it's taking sort of that uh, process relational origin story that I just described with the Center for Process Studies, but really putting it to work on uh, addressing the sort of complexity of social environmental challenges through this, um, through, through international collaboration, local projects, um, and things like that. So it's just much more on the, the action side of things, much less on the academic side of things. But they uh, come together really nicely, which is fun. So that's basically my snapshot of my life uh, professionally, is it teaching and conferences and research and process thought and doing uh, eco action and activism stuff. I also have a 17-month-old giant of a baby and a spouse and two dogs. Those things are important too, I guess. <laughs> right on. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, I love, yeah, I don't know. I, sometimes I aspire to having a fun, like, I mean this in a positive way, a fun, like nerdy theology uh, career that is also uh, deeply in touch with um, like a more pragmatic side of things where we can take our fine lofty ideas and try to apply them to make the world a better place. That sounds like a really fun thing to do. <laughs> so maybe one day. Um, but for now, I'm uh, I'm a humble brewer and podcaster. <laughs> but that's exactly it, but, though. This is it. This is this is the forefront of theology, right? I yeah. mean, it's, so I my my hero and uh, mentor, John Cobb, I he's he used to always say, you know, he's theology is uh, engaging the most pressing matters of your day from a faith perspective. Um, so if he, that's why he was publishing books on, you know, rethinking economics, rethinking evolution, um, the sciences, education. I mean, it's doing all these things that you wouldn't say, oh, that's what a theologian, that, he's a theologian. Isn't he supposed to do like Bible and God talk? What's he talking about? Like, you know, environment and, and economic stuff for because he's a theologian, right? That's for him. That's what theology is all about is engaging the things that matter most which is not just things, you know, of an otherworldly matter, but definitely making the world a better place, um, which I think he would say is what 
Jesus calls us to do. Yeah. And I guess too, just, and please correct me if I'm wrong, within like a more process relational framework, when it comes to uh, different like fields of study or different disciplines, instead of kind, kind of seeing them as these like individualized, siloed out kind of things, a process relational framework actually says, well, no, um, all of these kind of disciplines are actually very much related and overlap or in relation to each other and are are speaking to each other constantly. Um, and actually that like separating them uh, causes all sorts of issues. And so a process relational framework um, and like somebody like Cobb, what he's doing is trying to bring them all back into conversation together and say, no, actually, look, all of this is related and all of it matters. It's not a bunch of separate issues. Yeah. They're all kind of here together. I think he would say it's, you know, specialization is important, right? You know, we, we need doctors, we need engineers, you know, we don't want to get rid of specialization, but fragmentation is a huge problem because the world is not neatly divided up into academic disciplines, right? So if you're going to try to understand the world and its complexity, which is all intertwined, um, then we need to take a, a bigger scope of reality and understand how physics relates to biology, relates to uh, anthropology and religion and philosophy and, and et cetera. So yeah, definitely. Let's overcome our sort of silos of concern and understand how everything is interconnected. Sweet. Um, well, before, because specifically I wanted to talk to you about something you already mentioned, which is this idea of ecological civilization. Uh, but before we get there, I'm just curious to know uh, how did you come to find yourself within the world of process thought because i think most people don't just you know aren't just born and then raised in like a mega church of process theology <laughs> like i don't think that exists at least not in my experience maybe yours is different but how did how did you like come to find process thought yeah so i was on the road to damascus one day and uh there was this no wait no that wasn't it um i so actually my introduction, my my entree into process, the process community, into process theology and philosophy was through um, my college theology professor, Thomas J. Ord, who's um, a great a great guy, also a great thinker who does a lot on asking questions about um, theodicy, the problem of evil, trying to understand how, uh, uh, you know, how to make sense of, of a, a loving God um, amidst, you know, horrible suffering. Um, and evil. And uh, it was under him learning, you know, asking these sort of big questions about um, the relationship between God and the world, um, particularly issues of of suffering and evil, that I was really introduced to the process perspective. And at first it was, it was uh, kind of jarring. It was so different from the understanding of the world that I had grown up with. Um, and then the more I sort of sat into it, the more it, it uh, well, as John West would say my heart was strangely warmed um, yeah that's um so tom has never been a professor of mine but the first uh book that i ever read with you know even remotely close to like the process relational world uh, was tom's the uncontrolling love of god and uh -huh. i didn't even know what open and relational theology or anything like that even was i just uh how did it even come up? I don't know. I liked thinking that God was love and was on Amazon and just was like, God love. It came yeah. up and I was like, sounds <laughs> good. <laughs> and I loved it. And that was kind of my introduction. Um, 
And it's interesting because it it's been an aspect of my own faith that um has kind of really helped me to stick around with this whole like Christianity thing. Um and has like really helped me think through a lot of stuff. Um, but then also I've I've said on this podcast before, and hopefully this doesn't sound too weird or woo-woo, but like an open and relational perspective where I genuinely found a God who was love also kind of gave me permission to want to get to know this God and and genuinely be in relationship because the God I had before sounded like a mean dude with a stick, you know, ready to throw lightning at me any moment. And so like open and relational thought kind of like helped shift that, uh, shift that, um, and then opened me up to like the Christian mystic tradition and things like that. Um, which I've, I, you know, I've found deeply helpful. And then too, as you said, like how, um, almost like jarring or, or different, um, this way of thinking can be. And I remember for myself at first, it was very much like that, but I was just having a conversation with a friend the other day, um, where I I've noticed and I catch myself now, like, it's just kind of the way that I think it's like the framework that I'm always constantly operating out of now. And when I'm speaking to people who don't have the same assumptions, I have to be careful because I'll say something that maybe makes sense to me. And they are just like, I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> Absolutely. So I guess yeah, I've, I, I've been converted. <laughs> it's so easy to forget uh, where I came from. I mean, not like forget in the sense of I know oh, who am I have like amnesia, but like in the sense of like the assumptions that I used to just take for granted, things that I believed that never I I never questioned um, are things now that just make zero sense to me. It's like, how did, who was that guy that used to believe those things? Um, and I, so I, I get in, you know, you, you surround yourself with people who think like you, um, you know, which is what the Center for Process Studies has, you know, provided as a space for like-minded people to come together. Um, easy to forget that not everybody is coming with the same set of assumptions and the same perspective and worldview. We might have some of the same questions, but um, I mean, I grew up, uh, you, maybe you can relate to this, I don't know, but um, I'm talking praying for a parking spot that was closer to the building, hoping God would answer that prayer, um, because of course, um, you know, I mean, that's important to me. And why wouldn't it be important to God? Um, you know, sporting events, um, you know, I mean, we got a Tim T ballot and give glory to God every time we start score a touchdown because um, people dying of cancer, genocide, um, rape and murder and all these other horrible things. I mean, God can handle those if, if God wanted to, but um, what's really important is, is making sure I get the right, uh, you know, parking spot and that people win my sporting events. I, I mean, I used to sit in on the front porch, holding my Bible open, closing my eyes and hoping that God would make the wind move to blow the pages that open so I could read the verse that God wanted me to read in that moment. Um, never really occurred to me to think about the extension of that theology, right? So if God's in control of the wind, what does that mean about hurricanes? Uh, how does that how do we make sense of natural disasters and the, all the lives and the suffering that happens as a result of of these disasters. Like, is God also responsible for that? Or is God only responsible for um, flipping my Bible pages to the right Bible passage? Like, so anyways, I guess what I'm saying is there were certain things about how God works in the world that I was just taking for granted. Um, and now when I think about them in larger context, 
they become kind of problematic. Uh, you know, it's difficult to, it, I, it, the worldview that I had is not so much consistent anymore uh, with my understanding of the world. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of worlds in there that didn't quite make sense. You know what I'm saying, though. You get it, right? <laughs> I got it's, you. Yeah. 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 No, it's definitely very similar experience. I, I kind of grew up like, I don't know. It was, it's interesting because I started out in like a Methodist church. So I had like some mainline Protestant upbringing. And then my parents ended up leaving that church when I was in like middle school because they discovered this Southern Baptist church down the road that uh, had, you know, the wonders of like early 2000s contemporary Christian music. <laughs> and so uh, we started going there. And um, that's where I did like youth group, you know, middle school, high school, all that kind of stuff. So like that's the where like the evangelical side of me comes from. And then, you know, we ended up getting kicked out of that church. My brother came out um, when he was in seventh grade and they were like, you are not welcome here anymore. And so we said deuces. And long story, but we ended up landing in this uh, another non-denominational church, but I was not nearly as involved uh, youth group wise with that. Um, but yeah, a lot of a lot of similar assumptions. Um, I remember doing the like what you were saying, like opening my Bible and like putting my finger on a page, hoping it was like the right thing or something like that. Um, definitely praying for, for sporting teams, you know, maybe sometimes I still do that, you know, I'm rocking my capital <laughs> sweatshirt here just in case I'm wrong about how God works or it doesn't work, you know, yeah, um, got to head your bets, right? I mean, it's... yeah, right. <laughs> so, so, you know, go caps, pray for them. Um, yeah, but no, but, and then it's just, it's shifted so much, but now, um, it's like, I don't know. It's a framework that has helped me see things that I couldn't see before. And now like I can't unsee them. So it's just currently the one that makes the most sense. And it's That's what um, it is. Yes. helped me make sense of like my experience and also um, like the experiential aspects of my life, uh, how I see the world working, also my experience of God. And then it's like a theology that doesn't make me have to jettison any of those things or like write that stuff out. It can, it's, it's broad enough to hold those. Um, exactly yeah so that's why it's been helpful to me that's what i meant to say perfect yeah good job drop it like so. <laughs> sweet <laughs> uh all right well andrew so um you mentioned the uh was it the center for ecological civilization the institute or the institute institute yeah. yes incosiv yeah and also um you uh wrote a book together with philip clayton what is ecological civilization uh, crisis hope and the future of the planet um actually i read this uh over the summer at the river house like on the water which is like a, a getaway that i i do with noel my wife's family every year um and that was a really good place to read this book right on the water it was beautiful surrounded by nature um so any listeners if you're considering reading it which you should take a vacation and read <laughs> somewhere beautiful or go outside in the forest it doesn't matter um but one of the uh, primary um, issues that ecological civilization is trying to uh, solve or offer a way of thinking about is climate crisis, right? Um, and so I guess for people who aren't, uh, you know, super up to date on the state of <laughs> how things are going currently, um, what is this crisis climate-wise that we find ourselves in and how serious is it? 
Is it just a bunch of liberal hoopla or are we actually into some, uh, <laughs> some uh, troubling waters? Yeah. Well, I, I'll say that the science, the climate science is coming in all the time and uh, it's not looking good, Josh. Um, I know there's a lot of people who, you know, oh, that's just alarmist language, blah, 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 into the world, you know, catastrophe stuff. The fact is, is that environmentalism, I mean, we've been concerned about um, this, basically the environmental degradation since the 60s. Um, I mean, this is not, it's, it's, this is not a new issue, um, but it's also an issue that hasn't been addressed adequately which means over the last, what, 60 years, it's been getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and the international, um, you know, panel on on um, on climate, with it, I mean, the United Nations is coming out with all sorts of reports. Um, basically, we're just saying that we're looking at the possibility of a, the, well, the sixth great mass extinction. Um, we're talking... Yeah, when we talk about, oh, rising temperatures and carbon emissions and rising sea levels and blah, 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 just sounds kind of like, what's the big deal? What we're really talking about is um, changes to the planet that are basically going to be tipping a bunch of dominoes that could make um, the planet basically uninhabitable um, at the more immediate future before you get down that you know end road. It's going to make certain portions of the planet uh, uninhabitable. That then it's going to lead to climate migration. People are going to be migrating up, you know, into regions that are um, not, you know, the first to be affected. That's going to lead to all sorts of issues about power. Um, violence is going to have, you know, probably increase. Um, and all this stuff is already sort of happening already. I mean, between, I mean, it's not as if famines are a new thing. Like the, you know. There's been the earth cycles, right? I mean, that's sure. Um, but it just seems like based on the science that where we're at now is an unprecedented time of human induced changes to the environment. Um, as our technology has advanced just enough to uh, make it so our impact on the planet was super problematic. Um, hopefully it also means that maybe there's, um, it's the first time where we have sort of the wherewithal and the capacity to do something about it. So it's it's sort of this blend of uh, the crisis that we face is sort of unique in this moment, but also the hope that we can uh, find is unique at this moment. And sort of oscillating between crisis and hope is what that book is is trying to, to flesh out. I yeah, I absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think it's just helpful too for people who, um, you know, might not have uh, like a, a full understanding of just how serious things are, because there is a lot of rhetoric, right, about like, oh, it's just the alarmist language or this or that. Um, but then also just to recognize that there are like visible things that we can see happening right now. <laughs> like we keep setting uh, world records every year for the hottest temperatures ever recorded on Earth. Like that's a thing. Like I think Death Valley broke the record this year or something like that or last year. Rather, we're in 2023 now. Wow. Um, so there's all sorts of like actual things that are happening uh, currently. And like you were you were saying um 
people are like have a we have a larger impact on the environment now than like natural environment stuff has on the environment <laughs> which is crazy um and you mentioned the the sixth great extinction um happening which i remember when i first read about that i was i was floored um and it's like going to be the first time when like uh the species going extinct is like the direct cause of their own extinction uh which is a bit of a bummer like people have done some really cool stuff that won't be one of them <laughs> uh yeah so it's it's a a big deal um which is why i think there's you know been a uh different groups and and movements popping up um that are engaging in uh these kind of issues and trying to offer solutions uh but something that you guys suggest within the the book what is ecological civilization um is that there's an actual um underlining assumptions that aren't actually being challenged and questioned but rather uh symptoms are the things that are being treated and if we're only treating the symptoms then the root cause isn't actually you know going to be treated and we're still going to be screwed because we're still operating in the same framework and paradigm um what are some of those ideas uh, or or the paradigm that you think is actively um being used and why do you find that uh, to be problematic? Yeah. So I think first, uh, back to the the previous question, I mean, I think the U.S. is kind of unique in its uh, percentage of climate deniers. Um, I mean, the United Nations, you know, we're talking to over 190 nations signing on to say, no, no, this is an emergency. We believe what scientists are telling us. Um, the 2023 uh, agenda... 2023, the the sustainable development goals were agreed upon as like critically important. You know, we need to address this and we need to address this in major ways. And there's 17 goals that these, you know, that the nations of the world have all agreed upon. We need to start trying to make progress. Um, it's interesting. Um, it's not simply just carbon emissions. It's not just simply renewable energy concerns. It's not just about um, global warming per se. Within that sphere of um, major crises, these global issues, we're also talking about hunger and poverty, economic inequality, um, gender and racial discrimination. Um, it's this interplay of social and environmental problems that there's uh, people are starting increasingly to recognize are all interconnected. I think when um, when we talk about some of the worldviews that contribute to the the current sort of what we might call a complex crisis, this interconnected social environmental challenge that we're experiencing. Um, part of the problem is this worldview that doesn't see things as interconnected, but that has seen things as isolated and fragmented. Um, so some of us uh, in this uh, process relational philosophical community, um, some of us who part of the um, environmental philosophy um, you know, sort of eco-philosophy history of, of thinking uh, often point back to sort of the rise of, of modern philosophy, uh, thinkers like Rene Descartes, 17th century worldviews, um, the foundations of of the scientific paradigm of, of modernity that primarily sees the world as, um, as like a big um, sort of cl clock, right? Like a, a big mechanism. And, um, 
it's out of that that you get things like God is the sort of cosmic watchmaker, um, right? So like the deist understanding that was so popular in the 1800s, um, in the 18th century was was largely sort of adopting this paradigm of how do we see the world? Oh, the world's basically like a big machine. And how do you understand a machine? Well, you take it apart, you examine the pieces, you see how it all fits together. Um, and we've accomplished a lot on that sort of that scientific understanding of the world, but it also fails to acknowledge the, um, the living and dynamic aspects of, of reality, um, the interconnections, the relationships, um, I think sometimes I talk about how you can learn a lot about a you know a river by extracting some water molecules, putting them under a microscope, figuring out oh you got hydrogen and oxygen. It's like okay, so H two O that's great. And what does this you know make up? You learn something completely different about the river when you examine how it flows, how it relates to the land, what's living in it, uh, you know what's drinking from it, um, how if you introduce wolves into you know. A national park it actually could reshape the entire direction of a river i mean our world is much more than the um what than what you get out of a mechanistic lens right um so so i guess what i'm saying is one of the big problems one of that um we would ar argue is this mechanistic worldview that instead of seeing the world as a machine we say no we should see it as a living organism um a living earth if you will uh, framework and that if you start from that starting point, is it's completely different. So if the world's machine-like, um, okay, well, what are machines? Um, do they have intrinsic value? Do they have value for themselves? Do they have purposes or desires or goals? Um, or do they just do what they are created to do purposeless without really any freedom and creativity? It's just sort of programming, right? Um, so it was largely always assumed that, okay, well, humans, of course, we have some sort of freedom, we make choices. Um, and early in like modern thought, there was separation between the, the mind or soul uh, in humanity from the body. Um, and how do these fit together wasn't really clear, but that they were, you know, but that was actually what made humanity distinct. Humans possessed a, a soul and a mind. Um, and uh, the rest of creation only had a, a body um, it didn't possess that other um, feature. And that's what set humanity apart and above the rest of nature. Um, and if that's your perspective, if that's your worldview, well, it's going to be easy to say, how should we relate to nature? Oh, well, we can just do whatever we want with it. Like it, We are superior to and dominate over nature. Um, it's our prerogative to use it uh, however we want for our own immediate short-term needs and gains. Um, we don't have to be concerned about, you know, the needs of, of what the needs of the planet would be because the planet doesn't have needs. It only exists uh, for my needs. Um, so that sort of anthropocentric human centered perspective, um, that dominion over nature perspective, um, the mechanistic worldview, uh, all of these sort of things are balled up into what we might call like a modern paradigm, um, which is basically the framework, the foundation for what we see as, as modern civilization, modern society. So the ecological civilization um, sort of movement is about uh, identifying and establishing um, a different lens, a different worldview on which to build a new kind of, of human existence. So if we reorganize uh, human life according to 
an ecological worldview as opposed to like a mechanistic worldview, um, how would things be different? And that's that's sort of the starting point uh, for for what ecosiv is all about. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to try to do good active listening and repeat back some <laughs> things that you said. <laughs> I was thinking I'm like and see I if I can nail it. I just am rambling on and on and on. He's like, no, yeah, not at all. You're cr- you're crushing it. <laughs> um, but like I I so selfishly I'm also just trying like. I, so <clears throat> I do the podcast me is my point. Just okay. interrupt me <laughs> well, I'm not, anytime. No, you're anytime. Good. <laughs> but I like so I like doing the podcast because I I like having conversation and um I would like to think that the podcast helps people, but also I like doing it because it helps me uh like actually learn the kind of things that I'm trying to. Um and so that's this is me being a little bit selfish in that regard, um, just to make sure I have a firm grasp. Uh, but one thing that I wanted to comment on before you said that is that I've um, when you were talking about things like hunger and migration and all these kind of things uh, as a result from uh, these kind of the climate crisis. Uh, one thing that I think is also interesting to note is that a lot of the times the people that have been the most impacted by these kind of things are not those who are actually responsible for it. And I think that goes kind of to your point about like this climate uh, crisis denying kind of thing in America is that uh, a lot of um, the people here in America kind of have this privileged position where they're not having uh, some of the more immediate impacts of the climate crisis. They don't see it. And so then we have like these blinders because all of us have like this proximity bias where if it's not happening here in my you know, proximity, then it's, it must not be happening anywhere. Um, and so that's just something too that I kind of noticed, um, and think is an interesting, uh, kind of, you know, I don't know, aside or or something to throw into the, the conversation in that regard. Um, yeah. And we've, unfortunately, I think we've politicized an issue that should have been a unifying issue. So yeah, now become a, (laughs) a, a tool for division rather than a tool to unite all of life on this planet around the shared goal of continuing life on this planet uh, right. and the flourishing of, of life in all its forms. Um, yeah. Yeah. It play, I mean, it plays into that othering, right? The, dehuman, the dehumanization of the other. And then if this is a humanity issue and we're dehumanizing people, then like, meh, whatever. <laughs> it's not so no bueno, not good. Um, but so like, I'm going to try to, uh, repeat back to you some of the like underlying presumptions that might not be helpful. So one of them you mentioned uh, had to do with like uh, some modern philosophy, like uh, that of like Rene Descartes, right? So this kind of dualism uh, where mind and body are separate. um, And also like, I guess there's a bit of like a tinge of Gnosticism in there too, right? Because you have this idea that the the body is evil, the earth is evil, like matter doesn't really matter. Uh, and the only thing that does is like our ethereal souls that are going to float off into space and live with God someday when we die. So why care about the earth and the environment? It's just going to be dead anyway, uh, kind of thing. So there's like this dualistic aspect that you want to challenge and say, no, um, I don't know. What do you want to offer in its it, place? That's kind the question, of... right? Well, so what's our yeah. alternative to this sort of <laughs> mind-body dualism, right? Yeah. So I think 
what's interesting is that you see like the uh so evolutionary theory comes on the scene and all of a sudden it calls into question this um relationship of humanity to the rest of of the natural world um are humans a part of this evolutionary chain process or um are you know if so then how how are humans distinct right we before descartes saying that we've got a mind and a body and the rest of you know other creatures don't like did that did the did the mind emerge at some point in that evolutionary process or um i mean where how how do we become so different and so special to the rest of nature so there was this moment in history where because of um sort of darwin's uh, insights and the rise of evolutionary theory that scientists actually had the option to say wait a second we need to reimagine the rest of nature according to the very principles that we attribute to humanity namely subjectivity that humans are living subjects with their own sort of identity purpose values um in and for themselves right so that we experience uh, and rather than attributing that sort of the, the concept of subjective experience and intrinsic value and get in extending that to the rest of of creation scientists basically strip away uh the the sort of dualism turn it into a, a reductive physicalism or a materialism that says we actually don't have a a, a body separate from a mind we just have bodies and that what we call a mind is really just a, it's just neurons firing, it's brain activity. Like it can all be explained in, as a natural phenomena. There's nothing other than the natural world. Everything is just matter. So that became the dominant paradigm, which meant the sort of idea that the, the world is sort of just dead matter in motion. Um, there's no meaning, purpose, um, or, or sort of intrinsic value to be spoken of. Um, that sort of view the rest of nature as sort of only as instrumental value or whatever values for uh, human ends. Basically, humanity was lumped under that same viewpoint so that the negative view of nature uh, basically was extended to include humanity rather than the other way around. Um, so now, so then you have, um, you have a whole nother dilemma with how do you make sense of, you know, creativity um our experience of freedom do we is everything just predetermined by you know the flow of history and all these sort of matter and motion sort of bits bouncing off each other so process thought comes on the scene and we've got a completely different answer to that you say no it's not the dualism that we see in descartes that's mind separate from body and somehow interacting and it's not um just bodies um and everything is simply just physical, but that there's this, um, what we just call dipolarity. So basically two sides of the same coin, not separate, always intertwined, um, that physicality and mentality are just two aspects of what it means to be. But at the end of the world, the most important thing, the thing that, you know, on which reality is made up of, it's not, uh, it's not like sort of bits of matter. Um, it's, uh, moments of experience, which actually means that um, instead of being a world of objects, um, you know, like, I don't know, like rocks or something, we're a world of subjects um, because subjects are, you know, experience is something that um, that only it makes sense in the context of subjectivity of like being the, the center of an experience, right? The one who is experiencing, the one who uh, feels, um, 
So basically, process thought just wants to extend that notion of experience and feeling to all of creation rather than um, restricting it and saying, as John Cobb, you know, just so concerned, he's like, why do we keep teaching that we're all just zombies? Nobody believes we're just zombies, but we keep teaching that that's the truth because it's, you know, in his mind, it's like, well, of course, what is a zombie? It's just, you know, a dead thing walking around with no real sort of living purpose. And, and, you know, anyways, so that's zombies. That's where we got. That's, how, that's, that's basically the, the paradigm. <laughs> we're not zombies. Uh, right. Which goes like the idea that we are zombies, even though, like you're saying, it's taught goes against experience because i don't experience myself to be a zombie and so i guess one thing process thought takes seriously is experience like hey experience matters absolutely and to have a worldview that makes sense of your own experiences um and is consistent with them i mean that's that's kind of the goal right because what information do we have about what the world is like um i mean the best information we have is our own experiences of the world and our own experiences uh, as ourselves as experiencing entities um, so reflecting on our own experience um, for a process thinker is a super helpful tool for trying to make sense of of the world at large. Sweet, yeah. good deal. So that's the that's the uh, from, move from dualism to either some kind of like more like holistic perspective, like a holism, or I don't know yeah, what is Tom. That's a good what way is to say it? Holism. What, I like it. What does Tom call like dual aspect monism? Is his does yeah. he use that I mean, phrase? That's where you get, like, <laughs> to get Hartford more nerdy, and, you know these other yeah. philosophers and theologians. You know, we come up with get funny names, super things, nerdy. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's but basically, yes, it's like overcoming these like deep philosophical scientific problems of the relationship between our experience of mentality and our experience of physicality, and how do we explain both? And basically, you've got if you if you have them separate, you have a problem of how to make, you know, make sense of them combined. And if you have only one, you have another problem, which is basically how do we explain our experience of mentality, freedom, um, and creativity, novelty. Um, why is it that things don't just repeat over and over and over? Why, how does novelty emerge, uh, in a world that's purely determined? Um, uh, there's all sorts of questions, but it's not like they're I don't know. I don't, it's not like these conversations are over, right? They're continuing to happen in academic circles. Like there's no set agreement across the board that says, oh yeah, this is, this is the right metaphysic. This is the right, you know, holistic worldview. Um, but we process people think, yeah, we've got a decent explanation for things that has actually held up uh, for the last, you know, hundred years. Um, despite new advances in science and new insights about how the world works, those insights are actually reaffirming a process paradigm that predated a lot of those insights. Um, so you get new new thoughts in, in quantum physics, um, you know, theories about energy and the transmission of energy. Uh, all of that seems to be more or less supported by Alfred North Whitehead's philosophy from the 1920s. Now, what happens if Whitehead was wrong? Great. Okay. Let's change our theory, <laughs> right? It's, sure. not, it's not about Whitehead <laughs> worship or any sort of dogmatic perspective. We're trying to do the best we can to make sense of the world around us and to have provide a framework for for meaningful, uh, enriched lives. And I think you do your best, you forget the rest, and feel free to be open and adaptive and and make changes accordingly as new information is made available to us through our own experiences, through scientific insights, through um, you know 
all sorts of things. Aliens showed up on our planet right now and they gave us a whole different uh, set of knowledge and tools to work with. We probably have to uh, reconsider some things. Yeah, <laughs> I think that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. And uh, I think too, like that's one thing that, well, another thing that has been so attractive to me within like a more process relational framework is this kind of flexibility, uh, and also the way that like it plays nicely with um science, especially like weird science like quantum physics and such. But also too, one more shtick for my uh, Christian mystic friends out there. I feel like it plays nicely with a lot of some of the stuff that mystics within the Christian tradition for since forever have been saying. Um, and yeah. I'm like, huh, maybe we should pay attention to that because that's weird that that just happened to work out that way. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. So, I think so much of our, like the dominant perspectives and worldviews, um, they seem to be supported by like typical everyday experiences. Um, but they seem incapable of capturing the things that are most interesting to us, those experiences that are more unique, um, extraordinary. And whether you're talking about mystic, mystical experiences, psychedelic experiences, uh, it, whether you're talking about quantum experience um, and entanglement, like there are certain things that like the the dominant paradigms just have a difficult time making sense of. Um and I think that's where you have a, a process lens comes in and says, yeah, we don't just need to dismiss those things that don't fit our paradigm and say they're irrelevant, they're externalities, they're you know, something that shouldn't be considered. We need to widen our paradigm and our scope to try to include them and make sense of them uh, because those those experiences are, are important and valuable parts of reality as well. Um, so if you have a, a, a worldview, if you have a paradigm that's not capable of including mystical experience it seems that you probably have a a faulty paradigm um so that's my two cents i dig it i dig it because it it agrees with what i think so we'll say <laughs> which is how i qualify everything on the show only things that i agree with are allowed to be said just kidding <laughs> oh man so all right so um i'm gonna try to uh, phrase like the mechanism to organism thing in maybe a weird Josh way. So mechanism, think about the world as like or uh, as like a like a clock, like you said, or a machine. Um, has been the dominant paradigm. But when we shift out of that and look at it as rather organism, it's almost instead of trying to um break the world down into little pieces and learn what they are smaller even though that can be helpful it's actually recognizing how the world works in a larger in its larger relationship so like if you know what it like a you know an ecosystem is in say like a pond you can study the little ecosystem there and if you zoom out all the way and it's like looking at the world as one big ecosystem recognizing that like we are the earth like we came out of this thing and all of all of this all of creation is in relationship uh with itself and it's 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 more organic it's all one almost like look at it as all one living organism rather than just these like little i don't know mechanistic kind of things does that work yeah i think i mean so it gets again. I I, I struggle because you know I'm a process philo well, philosophy in general, but process <laughs> yeah. philosophy even in particular, 
I mean, it it runs into this problem of being like difficult to understand because right the terms being used are so you know unfamiliar or whatever, and they prehension, concrescence, these kinds of right, things. Right, right. <laughs> but I think when you talk about, I mean, it's not as if like your average American is talking about mechanistic paradigms versus organic. I mean, nobody's nobody's quoting Rene Descartes as their core influence for how they live and act. I mean, that's just not you know, that that's fine. Doesn't mean that it's not sort of underneath these underlying assumptions that we've been taught since we were kids, that we've been taught for generations about the way the world works and our place in it. And I think one of those core assumptions, um, which is shape so many of our, our, our policies, our um, social structures and things like that, is basically that the world is dead. Now, that doesn't make sense because it's like, well, of course, that that doesn't vibe with our own experiences and intuitions like the world's alive. You know, it's like you water a plant and it grows. And of course, it's alive. Like, I'm alive. You know, you're alive. Like we're having a conversation. We couldn't do this if we're dead. And that's why Cobb is like, nobody believes we're zombies, but the world, you know, the the, the dominant message is we're all zombies. And you might be thinking, well, where's that message coming from? Nobody's you know saying that. But then if you look beneath some of these assumptions, you know, um, why, um, well, so basically if you strip away subjectivity, um, from living things, what do you have? You have a machine and machines aren't alive. They're dead. Um, so are we basically just machines? Um, you know, I think, and then of course that, I mean, maybe some people are like, well, what what about like artificial intelligence? What about like, um, you know, could machines be alive? You know, maybe, maybe you're, that's a whole different ball game. I'm all game for talking about it. Um, but I think the question really is, um, if the world is alive, if the world is, uh, if we are part of a living web of life, how should that change the way that we live? How should that change the way that we think about our relationship to nature? Um, should we farm different? I mean, for example, like our dominant way of of uh, of, of raising food, growing food, right, uh, through agriculture, is a paradigm that's basically we need to control the environment. We need to dominate over it. So we're going to grow a bunch of stuff. Um, and, but we have to use a bunch of pesticides, uh, in order to keep away pests. And, uh, and then we have to genetically modify our crops in order to make them sturdy enough to withstand the pesticides as well as harsh conditions. Um, and we're basically just going to force, um, our agricultural, uh, desires on the context and basically tame the land. Um, that approach is a very modern industrial uh, approach that is not uh it, it is, it's embedded with a worldview of humans being dominating over nature nature existing to serve the needs of, of humans alone it's not a, a worldview that considers the um, importance of biodiversity uh the health of living soil the uh the need for working with nature rather than trying to dominate over nature so i mean I guess what I'm saying is there's like very fundamental things about how do we grow food that we don't always think about. Uh, why do we grow food the way we do it? 
the assumption is, oh, well, that's just it's because it's the best way. And that's not actually the case. Um, we're doing it because there's a certain set of assumptions about what it means to be human um, in relationship to the rest of nature and how the world works that are underlying assumptions that are typically not questioned or called into question or even evaluated and considered, but they're still driving our basic practices. Um, and I think what we want to do as part of an, an, an eco-civ movement is to, to raise those issues and call them into question. Um, one of my heroes is Vandana Shiva, uh, who's a, an author and activist in India, who's, um, I mean, her, provocatively raising these issues and saying, no, we have to to go back to um, indigenous wisdom and and try to um, forget the, the, I mean, it's just, yeah, anyways, we don't have to get into it. I'm talking too much still, but hopefully some of that makes sense. Restate yeah. it, restate it, Josh. No, I think you, I, I, I very much think it makes sense. And I, I like that you bring up the example of farming because it is such like a practical way to talk about how, um, I don't know, like a way that we can learn from the environment and like from nature, like nature was growing that shit way before we figured out how to do it. So we should probably <laughs> ask them what's up. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that makes sense. And it 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 kind of gets into um, like one of the critiques you make in the book as well as we have like this unlimited growth kind of paradigm, like capitalism is kind of based off of that idea. And we've actually gotten to a point where we know like this is just demonstrably false. Like humans are quite literally stripping the earth clean of its resources. This myth of unlimited growth, not real. <laughs> it's not it's not sustainable. It's not attainable. It's it's not gonna work. Um so yeah, I think farming is a really good, like just practical kind of uh, I don't know, down-to-earth way of of looking at it. Um and also, too, I guess when you talk about like recognizing that the earth um, is alive, that it's living, um, is another way of saying uh, like the earth is the earth is still in process. Like everything is is still this like interrelated process moving forward. Um, it's not just static. We don't live in like a static universe anymore. Uh, well, we never did, but we thought we did. Thought we <laughs> um, did, right? Right. <laughs> so it's just uh, that helpful shift. Yeah. Well, in the economics thing, I mean, it's the mainstream economic theory has basically been so focused on um, the circulation of money um, that it's it's sort of excluded things that aren't part of that formula. So um, so in economic terms, there's these externalities, basically the natural world, the environment that um, is sort of written off as irrelevant to X. So, so that's why you have this, these principles of like unlimited growth on a, on a finite planet, which just doesn't make sense. Um, you know, just practically speaking, it doesn't make sense like to our, our basic intuitions, but in economic theory, a, a mainstream economic theory, it makes total sense because um, the, the limitations that you're talking about are, are excluded from consideration. So, I mean, early on, you had um, people like Herman Daly, who actually worked with John Cobb um, on, on some ecological economic theories, trying to include the environmental world in our economic theories and, and practices and systems. Um, Kate Rayworth uh, has done a great book called uh, Donut Economics, which is taking that same frame, and you think of it as a donut, right? Like, we have to include our... Um, 
you know, environmental sustainability and environmental, just basic material, um, you know, limitations as part of our economic formula. But when you, I mean, beyond the sort of ex exclusion of the natural world from economic theory, you also have this issue of um, sort of the self-interested individual at the center of, of capitalism, which why do we assume that uh, our economic system should be guided by the idea that the, the sort of notion of a everything's being guided and run by the principle of self, you know, um, individual self-interested folks. Is that how humans really are? Like, why do we make that assumption is, are we really primarily just individuals? Are we actually persons in community? Um, do we really only care, you know, about our own self-interest or do we actually care about the interest of those around us as well? Like, so I think the philosophical assumptions beneath capitalism even need to be stripped down, questioned, re-examined. And what you might get is, uh, instead of measuring economic activity just through like market activity and the flow of money, maybe we can measure the success of the economy, not by, not by how rich, rich people are getting, um, but actually how well other people are doing, um, you know, so like well-being, uh, happiness, um, do you have good relationships? Is your, you know, do you have all of the material sufficiency that you need? Do you have access to food and, and water and, uh, and home? Um, are you spending four hours in traffic every day in order to commute to your job? Like, should these also be considerations in the quality of life that is being measured uh, by, you know, when we measure how human uh, communities are, are doing? But if you simply just use GDP and, you know, gross domestic product as the measure of success for a nation or an economy, um, you're just, you're missing a lot of the equation. So there's, so within the ecological civilization movement, there's people who are working on well-being economies, um, ecological economies, donut economies, circular economies, and regenerative economies. And all of these are trying to widen the lens of, of economics and in economies to be more holistic and inclusive of the things that actually matter to us. Um, yeah. It's a lot. I mean, we're talking, it is. Yeah. I mean, when and that's the, that's the, and this is the civilizational piece of, of ecological civilization. We're really talking about rethinking the entirety of how human life is organized in this planet globally. Uh, but with respect to very uh, specific local communities. So everything's included, rethinking agriculture, rethinking economies, rethinking politics and governance, rethinking, um, you know, education, rethinking transportation and energy. Uh, I mean, it's everything about how life is organized needs to be, it doesn't mean we have to start from zero. It doesn't mean you get rid of everything and, and start from scratch. I mean, that would be impractical and irresponsible. Um, but it does mean that we need to, to rethink and to restructure society because actually this so there's this um within systems thinking uh which um a, a famous sort of model that has been you know featured in by mit uh thinkers uh part of uh the insights that led to um the limits of growth book that came out of the club of rome research uh, led by mit thinkers and, and computer scientists who are trying to to change the way that we see the world not simply as linear um but also sort of as these complex webs of interconnection so very much amenable to like the process relational worldview uh, but coming at it from a completely different uh background so 
this systems thinking perspective, you'll often see like an example of like an iceberg. Um, you see only what's above the surface, but there's all this mass of the iceberg that's underneath the surface, these invisible things we don't actually see. And the point, I guess, is that what we see are just the events that are happening in the world um, and responding just to those events without understanding what's beneath them. Um, we're talking the patterns and trends historically, the systems and structures of society and the way things are organized and the mental models, the, the worldviews, the values, the core beliefs and assumptions that we have about the world and our place in it. If we don't change those things beneath the surface, then it, then we're not going to get the results we want on trying to address um, the events around us. So if you want to address homelessness, if you want to address hunger, if you want to address climate change, um, the the approach has to be more um, holistic, comprehensive. Um, we've got to dig deeper uh, to those underlying uh, causes and, and deeper roots of complex social and environmental challenges. So that's kind of the... the um, the perspective that ecological civilization is pushing for, overcoming fragmentation um, and siloed concerns, digging deeper to understand the, the complexity of, of complex problems and their interconnection, um, while encouraging a, a rethinking of, of our, um, our core assumptions and beliefs um, and using a, a new set of assumptions and beliefs to restructure and reorganize uh, how human communities are, are done so that we can then develop new trends and patterns and change the way that things look above the surface, making the world a better place in the process. That's the hope. Sold. All right. Cool. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Now it's, yeah. it's just a simple matter of just doing it, right? That's the... Right. That Now I have to get pragmatic with it. Yeah. Um, can I ask... All right. So I have two two more questions I want to ask you. One of them is very nerdy and i'm just excited about it the other one is more practical in uh say you and i are you know sent to i don't know pick some random church uh here you know in america um specifically like we're sent to i don't know like an evangelical mega church and you know you're put on stage and they're asking you these questions and you're talking about this idea, because a lot of what you've been uh, saying is like, we have this faulty assumption that that nature creation is just created to serve humans. Um, and so it's like this, you're basically critiquing like anthropocentrism, which I agree with. But what would you say to somebody within a Christian circle who is like, well, isn't that what the Bible says? That like, obviously, humans are the crown accomplishment of all of creation, and everything else is subordinate. Uh, the Bible says it, that settles it, I believe it kind of thing. How would you speak to somebody uh, within that framework? That's a great question. Um, my first knee-jerk reaction is I want to call into question um, the how the Bible is used. Um, but then I have to step back and wait, wait a second. You can't attack the Bible because that's the the source of authority that needs to be appealed to. Uh, for this very audience. So then I have to stake, oh, actually, let's step back and then take a closer look at the Bible, what's actually being stated here. And then I think that's where you start going into the path of not of domination over nature, but uh, responsibility uh, for creation care, uh, concern for nature. It's, um, I mean, and effectively, I mean, that even in the Genesis story, right, that's what you get. It's like, hey, um, here's the garden, here's all the animals. By the way, 
take good care of them. It's not um, do with them as you wish. You know, they only exist to serve you. I mean, that's not, that's not, that's not leadership and responsibility. I mean, and I think if you go even deeper than to understanding like God as an example of how we should interact, um, how does God interact with us? Uh, how does God interact with the world? Is it simply just top-down, hierarchical, one-directional? Um, you all are just my puppets and exist to serve me. Um, so I don't really care about your well-being. Um, I just, you know, am going to do what I want with you, whatever entertains me at the moment. Um, that's not the narrative that we tell, right? We say, oh, no, God is love. God cares deeply about us. God is with us and working through us. Um, and that there's this give and receive relationship between God and the world. Um, I mean, the entire story of the incarnation, the idea that uh, God is is taking on human form in order to live among us, to be with us. Um, that doesn't sound like that sort of top-down domination paradigm that we hear. Um, so if that's the model that God sets forth for us, um, what would it look like look like for us to follow that sort of same paradigm of um, love and relation and interconnection um, and care for life? Um, if you don't care, I mean, isn't that kind of what it comes down to? Like, do we actually not deeply care about living things? Um, if not, well, let's just call a spade a spade. Like, let's say what it is, right? Like, it's, you know, or a diamond a diamond or what other card colors. I mean, it's just... I just want people to admit our assumptions, right? It's okay if we want to say, I think that I as a human am more special than a squirrel. And I shouldn't have to care about that tiny squirrel's little nuts. Like, you know, that's not, that's not my concern. Like I've got my own concerns and it's not the squirrel. Um, okay. We can admit that, but then we have to, uh, to justify it. I think that's a whole nother issue. Like how do you justify your stance that, you are superior to and above and, um, you know, all this other sort of thing, uh, of the rest of, of other living things. Um, it can, I think it could be justified maybe. I mean, it's, you know, but that's where the work starts, you know, let's reflect on it. Let's talk about it. Let's not just take it for granted. Um, that, I don't know, the only thing that matters is me and mine and my perspective. I mean, that's, that doesn't sound very Christ-like. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, one point of clarity from uh, what you just said, when you're referring to the squirrel's tiny nuts, are you referring to the food that the squirrel eats? Or are you saying we should care about the size of the squirrel's genitals? <laughs> I couldn't even ask it with that. Last thing. It, was, yeah, it was well it was, done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, nice. Okay. Uh, yeah. So you heard it here, folks. Um, <laughs> both and perfect uh fits a process framework all right so um last uh nerdy question for you um i personally have found uh within my own um like why should i care about this um ecological kind of stuff one of the things uh that helped shift you know in my perspective like theologically was adopting some form uh, some form of like panentheism um, and I know panentheism uh, is, you know, prominent, I guess would be a good word within a lot of like process or even open relational circles. And so like, um, I don't know what, like, would you agree <laughs> that panentheism can be a helpful tool uh, 
for, you know, just theologically thinking about um, creation care and the environment and stuff like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Does that, does that question make sense? It does. So okay. I think there's a couple things wrapped up in that. So one is, I mean, the big, the big question is just how is God related to the world? Right. So if we're going to talk about care for the world, like what does that have to do with God? And if you're a, a pantheist and you sort of say, well, all is God and, you know, God and the world are sort of identical in that sense. Like, um, you know, care for the earth is care for God and care for God is care for the earth. So like the two are, you know, are one. Um, a, a pan-entheist might say, I mean, there's a variety of, of expressions of all of this, right? And you might say, well, um, you know, all is in God. Uh, which means the world is in God. Um, God is also in the world, intertwined with the world. Um, and it's sort of that intertwinedness of God and the world that could say, well, again, if you if you care about God, then you should care about the world because the two are not separate. They're actually all intertwined. Um, I think I think that can be very helpful. I think it's a more than just like a theological like explanation to convince us to care about the natural world. Um, I think where a panentheistic perspective uh, is valuable a lot of the times is um, wonder and awe and appreciation for nature. Um, you were talking about mysticism earlier. I mean, it's there's something about going out and standing in front of a river, gazing at stars, bathing in the forest. Um, forest bathing is a thing, right? Just You don't have to be naked. You can just walk around the forest with clothes on. It's, it's called forest bathing or whatever. Uh, where you're, you know, washing yourselves in the greenness of the, you know, of the forest. Um, I mean, the, appreciating nature, I think, is often more easily done if you see it as, um, as a spiritual experience. And if you can see, if you can see God in the world that you're trying to appreciate, um, it's easier to to walk away with a sense of awe and wonder and appreciation of the sacredness of reality. So a lot of people who are interested in like religion and ecology um, from all sorts of traditions, the sacredness of of nature is one of the huge like key talking points. Um, because once you see nature as sacred, then of course you're going to treat it uh, as sacred, and you know that's going to lead to a better like relationship between uh, you and, and the natural world and and God's a part of that. I think the other unspoken element, maybe this is more unique to a process worldview, is the issue of uh, omnipotence. I know you've talked with Tom Ward about, you know, his, was it omnipotence or whatever? How he, I can never say it. Yeah, his however Tom idea. says it. Whatever you say, Tom is right. Exactly. He listens, so we can you can talk directly to him and tell him he's wrong if you want to. He's... <laughs> no, 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 no. I would never. I would never. <laughs> But I mean, the idea, this criticism of the uh, the all-powerful in the sense of a, a unilaterally powerful self-determining God, right? So if God's power is the kind that basically God single-handedly does whatever God wants uh, and the rest of us be damned, like, then we don't have to worry about global warming. So you have a whole host of like uh, climate complacent people who for theological reasons say, I don't actually have to worry about the end of the world because... Uh, God's got it covered, right? God's in control and whatever happens, happens because God wills it. And uh, we don't really, it's not really my concern. Um, and process people come along and say, well, wait a second. That's not how God relates to us and the world. Um, God's 
uh, operates in the world, not unilaterally and coercively, but persuasively and relationally. And we need to be a part of bringing about the will of God in the world. You know, we are the hands and feet of God, and it's up to us to do something to address, um, to care for nature, to address climate change, to address in the same way we would social uh, inequalities and, um, and, and issues, right? So, uh, overcoming uh, climate complacency through uh, alternatives to omnipotence, I think, is is going to be important. But the other challenge, I was just talking to um, Catherine Keller's uh, class at uh, Drew University about this. Like, somebody raised a really good question about uh, basically eschatology, and your view of oh, okay, so some people are really like, come on, climate change, like destroy the world because the end is coming. Jesus is coming back, and I'm ready to go home. Like, I want the end of the world to come sooner rather than later so i can just like get on with what really matters which is going home to my spiritual you know uh forever home uh that's i hope a minority of people who are really like that dismissive of reality and that embracing of mass suffering um for the sake of basically world denying um otherworldly investment uh i don't think that's a majority of people but it, there are enough people who have that sort of perspective um, where not only are we not worried about trying to take care of nature, we're actually comforted by the destruction of the natural world because we think that it actually is a mark of the end is nigh. And the end is nigh means Jesus' return soon. And that's all I hope for is Jesus' return. Um, I would love to see a healthy and robust eschatology that believes that gives us something to hope for, um, and we're talking Christian hope here, that does not uh, at the same time throw all living things under the bus as irrelevant and meaningless. Um, I think that our our experiences, our suffering um, here and now actually does matter. Um, and it's not to say that um, we don't hope for something beyond this world, um, but I also think that... Um, it doesn't seem like God, it doesn't seem like Jesus would really want to like throw away this world. Um, they, they, you know, Jesus is uh, the, the incarnation whole, whole notion. I mean, it's seems like kind of a big investment on like trying to make the world a better place. Um, not just saying, well, let's just give up on it. And um, you know, I'll come back. Uh, so none of this really matters. I think the world matters, basically. I think your life matters. I think the lives of those around me matter. Um, and because of that, I um, I hate to see uh, a dismissal of that mattering to other people who just say, well, no, the only thing that matters is what comes after. Um, that's sad to me. Uh, it's a dismissal of life. Uh, and what do you have? It's not, I mean, life is what we've got. Uh, you know, let's yeah like like life is the like this life that we have is like the only thing we really have access to like and none of us have access to what happens after we die we can like hope right and have like maybe some ideas or something um but like yeah i'm i'm with you and you it's funny that this is the second day in a row now eschatology has come up um and i think like you're gonna put me into like pastor josh mode here um <laughs> And I'm going to start talking theologically, but I think eschatology is so freaking important for exactly the kind of reasons 
uh, you're talking about, which is one of the reasons I really like, you know, the work of someone like uh, N.T. Wright um, and his book, Surprised by Hope, where he talks about not the earth being destroyed, but rather the restoration and redemption of all things, right? Um, and even within Revelation, which so many people go to and use it as like a end of the world, you know, prophecy thing, which I think is totally abusing the, the book. Um, but even within that paradigm, it's 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 the city of heaven, so to speak, coming down to earth. It's it's the the two overlapping is one, not this like separate dualistic bit. And so if we have shitty eschatology, then yeah, it's going to lead to exactly what you're talking about. Um, but when we have a solid eschatological hope that we can uh lean into and strive for, then that's going to inform like I, in my mind, it, it forms everything else. Like our soteriology is going to be shaped heavily by our eschatology. And so like, if we have this escapism kind of bit, then like, that's very individualistic instead of what I think needs to happen is this recognition that my salvation is deeply wrapped up with your salvation. And I think that's true. My mm. salvation is deeply wrapped up with the salvation of, of nature, of all, of all things. Um, it's all together. So the salvation is, is this more holistic perspective. And then that gives us a grounds for uh, what I think is the truly prophetic, which is the Martin Luther King juniors of the world speaking truth to power. And so like without that kind of eschatological hope, like, I don't know. So I'm, I'm with you. Um, a theology yeah, and... of liberation has to include <laughs> a liberation of this world. Yes, it has to. Absolutely. Yeah. So not from this world of right. this world no, of this world. Very different. Yeah. Big time, big time. So I don't know. Uh, all that to say rock on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, yeah. That's uh shoot eschatology. That used to be, that was like my, one of my first loves in theology was uh, eschatology and then i would just go around and tell all my friends that they were wrong because i read like two nt right books <laughs> that was uh, early josh theology day so i don't know yeah I, I you now you got me thinking i need to start telling people that if um they don't care for nature that they're going to be left behind um so you can like so use their eschatology against them against uh, them yeah that's yeah. nice i that's a solid tactic it might work for the movement you know it's for the movement Just for the, so. yeah, yeah. maybe maybe not but it's always good to end with eschatology right the, yes, the yeah. theology of in things so yeah well what done what can we, be said we didn't even plan that just <laughs> no. boom <laughs> we just both of us gave into the divine lore uh leading us towards eschatology and we just gave a thumbs up so well done <laughs> Oh man, well, uh, Andrew, this has been a lot of fun. Um, I would love to chat again sometimes. There's some other things I'd like to, you know, pick your brain about. Um, one of them being just like, how can we have a more robust pluralism that doesn't suck? That would be a lot of fun. I don't know. Um, a lot of fun. Yeah, this is this has been great. Thanks for hanging out. Um, yeah, been a pleasure for... to rethink faith with you. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Uh, for people who might want to like get connected with you uh, or the Center for Process Studies or the Institute for Ecological Civilization, um, where should people go? Um, I mean, I've got a website, uh, 
It's like a WM for William, which is my given first name. Uh, AndrewSchwartz.com. I always um, wondered what the WM was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I didn't know if it was a title or not. Just, just it. my, it's just my first name, but I go by my middle name, so it gets confusing. I dig it. Yeah, but um, nice. yeah, I've got contact information there. I think, or you just email me. Uh, the Center for Process Studies website, the Ecosiv website. I think they all should have contact info for me there. So, uh, sweet. As well as the CST, the Claremont School of Theology site. So. Claremont, I'll include that. Claremont, and also I'll include um, a link to what is ecological civilization, um, as well for people. Uh, Beautiful. So, cool. All right, man. Well, thank you again, and listeners, as always, thanks for uh, hanging out today, and uh, go in peace.